This is Michael Easley in Contact. Here's a peek at what Michael will be talking about today. Just let's think about Satan. You may envision red tights, pitchfork. You may envision a tempting smile, a smirk, goading you on to sin. When I see, I don't watch much television anymore, but when I do watch something and you see these advertisements, these trailers for horror films, I wonder, you know, how vile and wicked and evil can you become? And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Hi, this is Michael Easley, and thanks for joining the broadcast. Did you grow up in a home that taught that Satan was real? Did you grow up in a context, an experience where Satan doesn't exist? He's a figment of our imagination. He's a Halloween costume that some people purchase and buy uh, for a party. It seems there are those who see Satan behind everything, anything bad that happens, any bad thought in life, any consequence that not the way we wanted its spiritual warfare. Satan is behind it. Satan is our enemy. And then there would be, let's say, the other extreme, for conversation's sake, that doesn't believe in Satan at all. It's it's a invention. It's mythology no more real than the nursery rhymes. Well, today on the broadcast, we're going to be looking at passages from Scripture that build a theology of the doctrine of Satan. He's not that person carrying a pitchfork. He's a real, spiritual, and very powerful entity. He is an enemy. But we need to understand him from a biblical context, not what we grew up with or what we have glommed together in our own search for meaning, if you will. Let's pick up the message, again, originally delivered at the Moody Bible Institute in front of the faculty, staff, and student body a few years ago. I am somewhat of a news junkie, and that's one thing I, I don't have as much time to do as I used to. But two things caught my attention this past week that are just um, indicative of the world that we're ministering in. One is um, Wren Chapel. If you don't know William and Mary, you'd have no reason to know. Wren Chapel and the Wren name is a staunch Anglican conservative movement. If you Google uh, William and Mary, it is the most beautiful campus in the United States. There's no question about it. It's Edenic. And the Anglican roots of that school were to train clergy, to train ministers of the gospel. This past October 26th, they took the cross out of Wren Chapel. In order to make Wren Chapel less of a faith-specific space and to make it more welcoming to students, faculty, and staff, and visitors of all faiths, now, when you go in there, it's so Anglican and, you know, Christian. I don't know how a cross is going to make any difference. The cross has been removed from the altar area. Um, it's a state school. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was chartered to train clergy. Before the church was what it was today, in those days, they truly believed the gospel of what you and I hold. And all that is gone. And, oh, by the way, let's take the cross out of there because that might be offensive. The other one that caught my attention was the Church of England. You've probably seen this. It's um, perhaps the most tragic piece of news I've read in a year. The Church of England has broken with tradition dogma by calling for doctors to be allowed to let sick newborn children die. Christians have long argued that life should be preserved at all costs, but a bishop representing the National Church 
has now sparked controversy arguing that there are occasions when it is compassionate to leave a severely disabled child to die. And on it goes, talking about the archbishop who issued the statement, and they give all these examples. If it, it is not for doctors or indeed anyone else to determine whether a baby's life is worthwhile simply on the grounds of impairment of health condition. The church took the other side said, no, we think the cost of this debilitating disabled child should be weighed in the factor and you should let that child die. The Church of England. Could be any church. And the reason I share those are not just sort of, you know, news you can use, but um, that's the culture we're going into. That's the culture you're going into. Uh, some of these faculty are better church historians than me, but as we talk about why we believe what we believe, your doctrine, your theology, your understanding of why this scripture is so important, it's not just important, it's crucial. And your understanding of that is going to give you the platform to serve Christ, to share the gospel well, to know why you believe these things. And my continued passion is that the culture and the tectonic shift is so sloped that no one is hanging on to truth anymore. And when the clergy come out and say, kill the baby, it sort of sounds like Herod, doesn't it? Let's just kill him. It's too expensive. Who's to say? And God help you if you're the one who wants your son or daughter to live and the medical community or the socialists say, sorry, it costs too much. So that's where we are. Well, with that joyful news, let's think about Satan. <laughs> you may envision red tights, pitchfork. You may envision a tempting smile, a smirk, goading you on to sin. You may have pictures of the rock band Kiss <laughs> in your room. Maybe Marilyn Manson. Um, when I see, I don't watch much television anymore, but when I do watch something and you see these advertisements, these trailers for horror films, I wonder, you know, how vile and wicked and evil can you become? I mean, it just blows my mind, some of the stuff that you see in 30 seconds on television advertising some new horror movie. Not long ago, in the UN General Assembly, President Hugo Chavez stood up in that bully pulpit and called President George Bush the devil. Many people think Bill Gates is the devil. If you Google his name and put the word devil and Bill Gates, you'll find all sorts of people that are sure he's the devil. I think the computer sometimes is the devil, but... Uh, Software sometimes is demonic. Some extremist Islamic thinkers will use a mantra that the United States and Israel are, quote, the great and the little Satan. Let's talk about some terms uh, from the Bible, three of them in particular. Number one, the word Satan comes from the Hebrew word Satan. It's a, a transliteration. You take certain words in a language, you loan them, they're borrowed words, and it's S-T-N. So we have transliterated that into English. Technically, it means the adversary or the accuser, Job 1, 6, and 7. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And this is one of the oldest records of interchange between God and Satan. The dominion issue, the control issue, he is stating his domain. He's stating his proprietary right from roaming around the earth and walking about on it. We see another concept of Satan in First Chronicles 21.1 when we read, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So the forces of Satan behind the king, the pride, let's see how big the kingdom is. Let's see how well we're doing. A second term often used is Lucifer. Lucifer it does not occur in your Bible. Uh, the term is a Latin gloss of the Satan word in Hebrew. So when they, tran- uh, excuse me, the, the, is, it's a Latin gloss of the phrase the morning star found in Isaiah 14, 12. You have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. That English phrase Latinized, you might call Septuagint, Greek, going to Latin language then in the Latin Vulgate using the word Lucifer. The third term is the devil, of course, and this comes two ways in the New Testament only, Satanas and Diabolos, devil, 36 and 34 times respectively. So the three most common terms. Let's talk about his identity a little bit. We're moving in a culture, as the little man on the street interview shows, that has sort of changed who he is. Does he really exist? Is he there? Uh, We've made him in our image, all sorts of different speculations. Even scholars, even men and women who used to believe in the Scriptures were inerrant and trustworthy and reliable in the Word of God, have changed the doctrine of Satan over the past decade or two. So they redefine him, they dismiss him, they classify him differently. The two key texts perhaps in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, that have always been sort of the the whetstone for sharpening our theology on who this person is. The hubris of the five I wills, the description of the king of Tyre, and those were traditionally classically appealed to to talk about the origin and the person of Satan. Those today are, have fallen off favor. You'll be hard-pressed to find theologians of the day who will refer to either of those texts to prove or to demonstrate his identity as Satan. I'm going to give you a dozen different terms very quickly that talk of Satan beyond those passages uh, so you can sort of build your own arsenal. You can find any of these in a handbook of theology or a concordance. You don't have to depend upon me. The serpent, of course, is the first one. We find him in Genesis 3.15. We'll also find him in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20. And the serpent is a great image of this, this evil one, this adversary, this accuser, the tempter. Uh, secondly, he is associated with angels. And there are a number of forms, either angels that are messengers or angels that are his minions, his demons. Uh, Paul refers to a messenger from Satan who was sent to torment me. Interesting phrase. Paul says, God has permitted, allowed this demon, this messenger to torment me. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. That was Paul's theology of this. Thirdly, he is disguised. Um, He's referred to as the angel of light. What does that tell us? He can look really good. When you read some of these near-death experiences, there were a few years ago when I studied the subject of death and dying at great length, and uh, I read a lot about near-death experiences. People have claimed to come back from the dead. Uh, They will all describe this angelic, this white, this welcoming, this warm type thing 
the preponderance of those people will talk about that angel of light. Fourthly, he is a tempter and a seducer. Let me give you just a few. He tempts Eve. What does he tempt the woman with? What's the basic of his temptation? I offer you a counterfeit promise. You'd be like God. The hubris of the I wills would correspond with this temptation. You'll be like God. Secondly, he, of course, he tempts Jesus. And if you study the temptation accounts, uh, Satan really is after Christ saying, look, you don't have to suffer in order to be king. You can turn these stones to bread. You can throw yourself off this pinnacle. You can do whatever you want if you're really who you say you are. And those temptations, whether they may seem theological abstracts to you and me, those were at the core of who the man Christ was and is. All those were counterfeit half-truths. Jesus could have done any of those things, but Jesus exists only to do the will of his Father. For Jesus to be the king, he must suffer. He had to learn obedience to the point of suffering, the point of death on a cross, in order to receive the glory that the Father had promised him. He tempts Ananias in Acts when he sells the property. He saw what happened to Barnabas and the attention Barnabas got. So Ananias sells his land. And he, he selfishly holds some, but he wants the popularity of the crowd. And the apostles sniff that out through the Holy Spirit's leading. And they, of course, Ananias had a short life after that. Um, he tempts believers. A passage I came across yesterday that I hadn't looked at in this light before 1 Corinthians 7, 5, when it speaks to a husband and a wife uh, abstaining from sexual intimacy for a time, but not too long, lest you be tempted immorally. Interesting use of the temptation there. Peter, of course, personifies the kind of temptation when he compels Jesus uh, not to go forward. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Well, how would you like to have Christ call you Satan? Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. So he's a serpent, he's an angel, he's disguised, he's a tempter or a seducer. Fifthly, he's the lawless one. Interesting phrase in 2 Thessalonians 2. Think about the one who lives to break the law, who tries to get around the law, who's always being clever and subverting the law, the lawless one. He's also sixth, able to hinder, the hinderer. In 1 Thess chapter 2, Paul talks about Satan hindering their ministry. Some of you have been overseas. Some of you will go overseas soon. Some of you will serve Christ overseas. And I don't know all I know about theology, but there does seem to be oppression and hindrances in so-called developing countries that are not sometimes as prominent in other places. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just sort of manifests itself in different ways. It's been my experience, perhaps yours as well. Seventh, he's the evil one in John 17. Eighth, he's the great red dragon in Revelation. And if you think of some of the comic book imagery, some of the uh, popularizations of Satan, uh, so-called medieval type depictions, dragon slayer movies, dragons are depicted as evil, as representative of Satan. So you have these two juxtapositions. You have the terror of a dragon, but the appeal of an angel of light. So he's a very clever creature. He's Beelzebub, King's English, the Lord of the Flies, which is a strange designation. He's over death and decay. That's his domain. 
10th, he's the God of the world. 11th, he's the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. Some of you have read or perhaps know the story when radio broadcasting first began and Christians got on broadcasting, there were Christians who said, no, this is the prince of the power of the air. You can't broadcast on air because that's Satan's medium. He's the liar and he's the father of lies in John 8:44. A little bit about his identity. Think with me about his kingdom. Satan does have a kingdom. He does have a dominion. Some of you have perhaps heard the name Anton Zandor LaVey. LaVey started the Church of Satan. It was founded on April 30th, 1996, very ancient religion. Listen to what they say on their web. We are the first above-ground organization in history to openly dedicate, openly dedicated to the acceptance of man's true nature. Listen to how they define man's true nature that of a carnal beast living in a cosmos which is permeated and motivated by the dark force which we call Satan. You know, that paragraph is pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. Think about Satan's choice. A carnal beast living in a cosmos permeated and motivated by the dark force which we call Satan. Well, two pieces under this kingdom. Number one, he is the ruler of this world. Number of passages in John from Jesus' lips, John 12, 31, John 14, 30, where Jesus speaks of Satan having power and influence over this world. Satan has darkened the minds of many people, even groups, I think, sometimes. There is an oppression. There is a power in his dominion. He's walking around. He's roaming over his domain. He has great freedom. God has allowed him a long rope of wickedness to affect his ministry in God's plan. He is the ruler of this world. Secondly, he has many under his influence. They're called children in 1 John chapter 3, 8. Those who practice sin, John explains. Those who habitually practice sin. I would put these in the category of non-believers and those who have not trusted Christ and who live in sin, calloused and determined and argumentative and rights-oriented, they are under his influence. They are part of his dominion. Now, if you stood on the street corner and did that same man-in-the-street interview and said, do you think Satan is affecting your life? What would they say? Probably not, right? But that's the power that he has in his kingdom. Satan will face a final end. And uh, he falls from heaven, Luke 10, 18. Remember, the disciples go out, and Jesus says, I saw Satan falling from the sky. Now, that is not an eschatological prophecy, what Jesus is saying there is when the Holy Spirit was working and I was working through you, I saw Satan start to lose his power. What is Satan's greatest enemy? The gospel. Uh, so when the work of Christ comes into the world, Satan's working overtime, we might say, for our understanding, and he's being defeated. So when the Christ came and the disciples went out, he saw him fall from heaven. Secondly, He'll be in prison for a thousand years, but he'll also be released, Revelation 20, verse 7. So there is a, an end to him, a terminus to him in his ruling on this earth when he'll finally be judged. A graphic passage in Matthew 25, 41, he's destined to eternal fire. This is, again, is another area where theologians, last decade or two, have just sort of erased the concept of eternal punishment 
uh, annihilation is a more and more popular theology taught among men and women who years ago held to a literal torment of hell and eternal punishment, eternal separation. The problem I have with the whole concept of annihilation is not that it doesn't sound merciful. It's just that the soul of man made in the image of God cannot die. You will live one of two places forever. The only difference is identity and location. If we're identified with Christ, we're with him. If we're not identified with Christ, we live apart from him. Life is sacred in that sense. You cannot kill life permanently. And so it only makes sense that those eternal decisions have eternal consequences, and Satan will be relegated to that eternal punishment. He's also last crushed by God. You can't miss the imagery in Genesis 3.15 with the woman and the heel and the serpent and the bruising and the crushing, and then you come full circle to Revelation 16.20. The same image is used again that Satan will be crushed by God. Let me give you a handful of cautions and exhortations when we think about and talk about Satan. Number one, his character is evil. He stands in complete contrast to the person and work of Christ. The character of Satan is to deceive, is to accuse. The accuser of the brethren is a fascinating term of his character. And how does this play out? He doesn't want you to think you're forgiven. He doesn't want you to think you're saved. He doesn't want you to think you're worth God's love. He doesn't want you to be secure in your position in Jesus Christ. He wants you doubting your salvation over and over again. He uses every little wedge he can in your soul and your intellect and your heart to accuse, to cast doubt, to deceive as the father of lies. All he can do is lie. That's his character. He wants everything to be twisted and turned. Contrast Satan's character with Christ's character who wants everyone to glorify God who wants to pay for your sins, secure your salvation, forgive you of that guilty conscience, get away from those trappings, to have a positional security in Jesus Christ, to know your heavenly Father, to walk intimately with him. There could not be two more polar opposite agendas, the character of Satan and the character of Christ. I'll never forget in a course I took in seminary on angelology, the doctrine of angels, both elect and evil. I'll never forget the professor showing us an overhead of Satan as Dante envisioned him, uh, brooding over his dominion, all painted in reds and blacks and very dark. The seminary professor began a lecture by saying, whenever you talk about the person and work of Satan, he can use it for his benefit. We don't want to trifle around in the doctrine of Satan, nor do we want to be children about the reality of the person and work of Satan. The only antidote we have is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Fascinatingly, we're never told in the Bible to go fight Satan, to go take Satan on. We're not even told to renounce Satan. In fact, Scripture enjoins Michael the archangel, who was not even allowed to produce a judgment against Satan. That's work beyond our capability. That's work left to Messiah. The best way to understand Satanology, if you will, the person and work of Satan, is not to study him in great detail and know how he works and study the ways he attacks in the kind of language we hear. The best way to understand the person and work of Satan is to not study him at all. It's to study the person and work of Jesus Christ. And pejoratively, we need to know a little bit about him. 
But why spend the energy and effort worrying about what Satan does and doesn't do? Let me encourage you to walk closer to Christ. Spend more time in his word. Meditate on him. Spend time in prayer. And when you feel those pressures or oppressions or whatever they may be, cling to the cross. Cling to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's accomplished what you and I cannot. And frankly, he's taken care of Satan. This, of course, raises a lot of questions we can't cover in a 24-minute program. But what you can do, you can contact me at michael at michaelincontext.com. You can send me questions, criticisms, comments, and I'd love to respond to as many as I can. You can also leave us a voicemail on the website at michaelincontext.com, and we will do our best to listen to every voicemail and try to respond. And we'll broadcast some of those on the program in the future. This is Michael Easley in Context. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.